You're listening to the LSE Cold War Podcast with its host, me, Jack Barsumelish. Joining us today is Sergei Radchenko. He's the Director of Research and Professor of International Relations at the University of Cardiff. He's an expert on Sino-Soviet relations, atomic diplomacy, and has written books on Mongolian and North Korean history. He has previously served as a Global Fellow and a Public Policy Fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., and as the Zijiang Distinguished Professor of East China Normal University in Shanghai. Today we'll be discussing the often tumultuous relationship between the two world superpowers on the communist side of the Cold War, USSR and the People's Republic of China. Let's start off before the Sino-Soviet split, which is what I think most people know about in terms of Sino-Soviet relationships in the last few years of Stalin's life, um, when you get the emergence of the People's Republic of China. Can you describe what the relationship was between the two states before the split and how did the leadership of the two countries view each other during that period? Well, so before the split, there was the alliance, the eternal and unbreakable alliance, which, of course, um, went up in smoke uh, in just uh, under 10 years. So the story of the alliance is very interesting in and of itself. This was a result of the Chinese Civil War playing out the way it did. Stalin never thought that uh, Mao Zedong would win in the Civil War. I mean, who could have predicted that? It was very hard to foresee. But then in the late 1940s, uh, well, by 48, 49, this started happening and Stalin had to choose or put all his eggs in one basket. He hesitated for a long period of time, actually leaving Mao, quite, Mao Zedong, Chinese leader, quite frustrated. Uh, Mao Zedong is a fellow communist, thought that Stalin should support him throughout, but Stalin, you know, Stalin was had his own geopolitical interests in mind and did not want to cut all ties to uh, the Kuomintang, so he hesitated for a while, but by 48-49 it became pretty clear that he had to essentially endorse Mao. So Mao Zedong turned up on Moscow in December 1949, already after the proclamation of the establishment of the People's Republic of China, in order to conclude a new treaty of alliance with the Soviet Union. Now, China and the Soviet Union actually had a treaty of alliance at that time. This is the treaty of, or this was the treaty of 1945, which was concluded after the Yalta Conference which gave the Soviets certain privileges in China of almost quasi-imperialistic character. Now, those privileges, China, uh, uh, they, uh, Stalin did not want to give up. So at first, he refused to give Mao a new treaty of alliance. And there was this period of a, of a few weeks in Moscow where Mao was not certain what was going to happen. And he became increasingly resentful of Stalin and even threatened uh, to leave Moscow, and once one of Stalin's lieutenants turned up at his at the dacha where Mao was staying, Mao famously said, "I have nothing to do here but to eat, sleep, and to sh-, uh, which was a signal to Stalin, like, you know, what are you doing? Aren't you going to have a communist alliance here?" And Stalin finally relented and gave Mao his treaty by January 1950, by actually January 22nd, 1950. Uh, in, the, in the meeting that they had, Mao agreed to effectively conclude a new treaty of alliance, leaving historians wonder what uh, changed his mind. There are no clear answers here. But it, basically, Stalin decided to embrace Mao as a fellow communist leader. And uh, Mao took some, you know, Mao not just took the treaty from Moscow, but he also took Soviet promises of Soviet aid, uh, 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 Soviet expertise in the 1950s. 
various Soviet experts uh, were sent to China to help in the modernization of People's Republic of China and the construction of new industries. The Soviets were essential in uh, helping China build its atomic program, for example. So this relationship developed quite well in the 1950s. Of course, it was tested and uh, found workable by the Korean War as well that brought China and the Soviet Union even closer together. So for a period in the 1950s, the relationship was going quite well until approximately 1956, and then things started to deteriorate. Did one country's leadership see itself as the senior partner within the socialist world? And was there agreement between the two partners on who that was, or did they both see themselves as the more senior partner? I think that's a key question here, and I think answering this question helps us understand what happened to the Sino-Soviet relationship in the late 1950s. So when Stalin was around, Mao Zedong was willing to defer to him, and indeed, uh, by all measures, really, the Soviet Union was the obvious elder brother, uh, it was the, the senior partner, it was the leader of the communist world, of the socialist commonwealth, so to speak. And, uh, and Mao was willing to go along. He actually emphasized in conversations with Soviet envoys and Stalin's lieutenants that he was a loyal pupil of comrade Stalin, unlike that unreliable crazy guy, uh, Tito, who was quarreling with Stalin, of course. And, uh, you know, Stalin, as a result, was very suspicious of people like Tito, which actually could be said of Mao Zedong, because unlike, you know, just like Tito, Mao Zedong also did not owe much to Stalin, so he was quite sort of independent in the way that he came to power. Uh, so therefore, Stalin had uh, reasons to be paranoid about, uh, about Mao, and Mao was trying to prove to Stalin throughout this period that no, no, we are loyal uh, followers of Comrade Stalin, we're going to defer to what Comrade Stalin says, uh, we are going to accept Soviet leadership, and so on and so forth. Now, comes 1953, Stalin dies. After March 1953, you have a transition in Moscow where new leaders come to power. Eventually, of course, Nikita Khrushchev comes out on top, defeating his various rivals and challengers. Uh, and uh, again, uh, you know, this is the height of the Sino-Soviet alliance, but the question comes, who leads? Who leads in this alliance? Now, on paper, in reality, so to speak, you know, the Soviet Union still was the, the superpower. This was the country that defeated the Nazis, that was uh, fighting the Cold War with the United States, that launched Sputnik into space in 1957. You know, you've got science, you've got technology, you've got military power, you've got economic power. So clearly the Soviet Union is the, by far the bigger dog, so to speak. Um, and, uh, uh, but in terms of interpersonal relations, in terms of uh, what Mao uh, thought of um, Khrushchev's leadership, this is a different question altogether because Mao thought that he had been, you know, he was a very experienced revolutionary. He had led a whole country to revolution. That was Khrushchev. Khrushchev was just a clown in, from Stalin's entourage. So therefore, Mao could offer something of a strategic vision for this alliance and for the broader socialist camp. And this is precisely what Mao tried to do in the late 1950s. Uh, and he was finding very little 
uh, understanding on, on the part of the Soviets. Uh, Mao was frustrated that when Khrushchev criticized Stalin in 19, February 1956, China had not been informed about this. He thought that this was uh, uh, this was an affront to the Chinese not to have informed them about this ahead of time, as it were. Um, uh, uh, secondly, there was the question of um, um, there was the when you know then in 1957 Mao went to Moscow again his second and final time he made this famous speech about the east wind prevailing over the west wind and how the socialist camp uh, was actually overcoming the forces of capitalism etc cetera, etc cetera. what was that this was Mao's effort to assert his leadership in the context of the socialist commonwealth strategic leadership he wanted to see himself as a kind of a strategic visionary for this commonwealth and he wanted the Soviets to defer to his advice because he saw himself as not just a great revolutionary but also a philosopher um, uh, you know, he was a poet. Uh, he wanted to kind of be uh, the, uh, the strategist in chief for the socialist uh, camp, even while recognizing a degree of Soviet leadership. So, uh, so that's where, where, where we find the Sino-Soviet relationship by the late 1950s. Yeah, we find uh, we find this developing conflict uh, over who should be in charge. How did Mao see the industrialization efforts of the USSR? Because, of course, communists had come to power in the USSR many decades before they did in China, so they had uh, many decades to implement an industrialization effort. So how did the USSR help China with its industrialization in the early period? And I'm also particularly interested in the help the USSR gave to China's nuclear program. Well, so those are two separate questions. On the broader question of industrialization, obviously the Soviets provided expertise. Um, they provided economic. They they helped the Chinese build major major enterprises, whether it's in you know, production of uh, tractors or production of aircraft. The Soviets were there um, in in helping the Chinese modernize their industry, approximately in line with the you know, propositions of, of, of Stalinist economics, uh, which which allowed a fairly rapid industrialization in the during the first Chinese five year plan. Now, Mao was, of course, happy with that, uh, but he was also dissatisfied to a certain degree with Soviet advice. And we see that dissatisfaction come to the surface uh, already after 1956, in particularly as Mao realizes that the Soviets had criticized Stalin, therefore Stalin had made mistakes. So perhaps Soviet comrades are not unfollowable after all. Perhaps they do make mistakes. And maybe some of the mistakes they, that they make also relate to economic modernization. From Mao's perspective, Soviet-inspired economic modernization was actually too slow, much too slow for what China needed. Mao believed in the, uh, in the importance of human spirit. Uh, that if people believe in building communism, just let them work hard for three years and then they'll have 10,000 years of happiness, so to speak, uh, work them, uh, inspire them, mobilize them, and then move them to move mountains, as it were. So this is the, this is the kind of idea that is very much behind the Great Leap Forward, which was launched in China in the late 1950s. Um, which in, in reality was a, an effort to compete with the Soviet Union, to show 
to the Soviet Union that their road to socialism or communism rather was not the only possible road, but that China could do it quicker, faster, better. They would get there before the Soviet Union. They would leapfrog the Soviet Union into communism. Of course, as we know, what that then led to was absolute uh, disaster because when you ignore economic laws, uh, you end up in, in a disastrous situation. And the Soviet advisors who were in China in the late 1950s were reporting back to Moscow, were actually telling their Chinese comrades, and you cannot do this. You cannot uh, overwork the uh, equipment in the factories or push the equipment to uh, produce more than what it was intended for. Uh, some of these ideas that you have about uh, 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 kind of, you know, for example, making steel and backyards and stuff are completely off the off the completely random ideas. You know, this is Chinese economy going off the rails. This is not going to have any positive result. And of course, Mao thought, well, this is just some sort of Soviet sabotage of his efforts. No, he thought that this effort is going to succeed. What did this lead to? That led to uh, the drama and the tragedy of uh, the Great Famine in China, in which tens of millions of people died. Ah, the question, the second question you raised, is, of course, the atomic project. And this is very interesting in itself. So the Soviet uh, effort to help China with its atomic project go back to 1956, when the Chinese co-sponsored a research institute in Dubna, which was a kind of uh, Soviet version of uh, the Asm for Peace uh, program. Uh, uh, in the United States, and uh, uh, and then Soviet scientists were involved in training Chinese scientists uh, in the in the late 1950s. And in fact, the relationship in this area was so close that in 1957, Nikita Khrushchev promised to deliver a prototype of an atomic bomb to China, an actual bomb that was supposed to be delivered on a train, which would be quite unprecedented. It did not happen in the end. And the, the reason it's, it did not happen is actually bound up. It connects it to this question of uh, the, uh, the de deterioration of Sino-Soviet uh, relationship already in 1958, approximately starting from 1958. Here's what happened. So in 1958, there was a, uh, a falling out. There was this famous meeting between Mao Zedong and the Soviet ambassador Pavel Yudin in Beijing, where um, uh, Mao Zedong called Pavel Yudin and just scolded him. Now, the reason he scolded him was that there was a Soviet proposal to create a joint uh, fleet between China and the Soviet Union, so that uh, there would, you know, that the Soviets could use the thousands of. Uh, uh, kilometers of Chinese coastline. Now, Mao Zedong was really angered by this proposal because to him, it, it, sort, of, it sort of seemed like this was some sort of a quasi-imperialist ploy to control the Chinese coastline. So he told the Chinese, now rather the Soviet ambassador, you never trust the Chinese, you only trust the Russians. To you, the you know, Chinese are you know, sort of inferior, dumb, careless people, and uh, and so on and so forth. You know, the Soviet ambassador was just taken aback by this. What kind of an outburst is that? You have you're supposed to have this wonderful alliance, and suddenly Mao Zedong jumps at you and says, you know, you're basically being racist imperialist. What are you trying to do here? So Ambassador Yudin then contacted Khrushchev. Khrushchev came to to Beijing to try to um, solve the problem that has uh, uh, that has that uh, has come up in the relationship and Mao Zedong and uh, Khrushchev then had those famous conversations by the side of the swimming pool in Zhongnanhai. 
where they seem to agree that this was just a, cl a cloud that passed over the relationship. The relationship was go going okay. They talked about international strategy, things were going off the rails in the Middle East, um, there was a revolution, etc. So they talked, it was a very interesting conversation. After Khrushchev left, Mao Zedong attacked those islands held by Taiwan off the coast of Fujian. Jinmen Island was, you know, he started the bombardment, ordered the bombardment of Jinmen Island held by Taiwan. This was not the subject that they talked about in Beijing when Khrushchev was there. So Khrushchev was just taken aback. What is going on there? Is Mao Zedong crazy or something? Why is he doing this? Why did he not tell us anything about it? Aren't we supposed to consult in our relationship? This could actually cause a superpower confrontation. And indeed, we know today that when this attack happened, when the attack, when the so-called Second Taiwan Strait Crisis happened in 1958, uh, President Eisenhower actually, I won't say he considered the use of atomic weapons against China, but certainly some of his advisors in the military considered and offered that to him and say, well, why not bomb the hell out of the Chinese? And, uh, you know, Eisenhower, of course, decided against this, uh, great, you know, thankfully, uh, but it was a really scary situation and it was a confrontation that could drag the Soviet Union into it and could lead into another world war without Khrushchev knowing anything about it. And as Khrushchev reflected after this crisis of 1958 passed, as he reflected on the situation, he asked himself, should we really be getting helping the Chinese build an atomic bomb. So there we go. By 1959, this program of transferring an atomic bomb to the Chinese was canceled. They never got the bomb. Uh, but of course, the Soviet help to the Chinese had been very, very substantial. I'm not saying that without the Soviets, the Chinese would not have developed their atomic capacity by 1964, because they also relied on their indigenous, their own uh, uh, expertise and their own uh, sometimes Western trained scientists. But in any case, the Soviets were quite helpful. So they certainly expedited the Chinese road to the atomic bomb, which was famously uh, first tested uh, in October 1964. I want to take that as a jumping off point to discuss whether it was geostrategic concerns which largely led to the breakdown of the relationship between China and Russia or whether it was ideological concerns or whether it was a mixture of both. Was it really debates over the application and the interpretation of Marxism-Leninism being one of the most important things? Because Khrushchev also was in his own way a reformer of the USSR. I'm thinking of things like the Virgin Land campaigns and the general reforms and obviously de-Stalinization as a whole that he attempted how did the Chinese leadership as a whole view the period of de-Stalinization? And in turn, how did the Soviets react throughout the period of the Great Leap Forwards? And is this the point of their ideological diversion from each other? So that's a very interesting question. And that's something that historians have been uh, trying to come to terms with and understand for many years. I'm thinking in particular about those debates that I had with Lawrence Luthi, who's of course another uh, uh, prominent historian working or who had worked on the Sino-Soviet relationship, having written a fantastic book called The Sino-Soviet Split. Now, um, uh, I, at that time, you know, Lawrence Luthi uh, emphasized uh, those ideological concerns and the diversion, uh, Sino-Soviet ideological diversion, uh, following the following de-Stalinization and the USSR. Uh, and in, in some ways, this actually agrees also with the Chinese historiography, where you have people like Wu Langxi, who was one of the original, well, who was actually one of the participants on the Chinese side of those, uh, uh, of those events, but who later wrote a two-volume 
uh, memoir about the Sino-Soviet relationship, where again, he also emphasized 1956 as the point of departure, ideological point of departure for the Sino-Soviet split, because essentially the Soviets had their own idea of what, you know, what communism should look like. Mao had his own idea and those were found irreconcilable, therefore their relationship started to break down. Now, the problem with this interpretation, uh, convincing as it may be at first sight, is that this is not, certainly not how the Soviets understood the Sino-Soviet split. Khrushchev never thought that the problem was an ideology. He never believed that, that China and the Soviet Union quarreled because of because of some kind of ideological differences. In fact, half the time he was puzzled about what those differences were. Uh, he would ask questions like, you know, why the Chinese are saying that we're trying to compromise with American imperialism, but we're not trying to compromise with American imperialism. And look at Cuba, we're helping Cuba. What do they want? You know, we're, uh, we're helping Indonesia, we're helping uh, Egypt, for example, we're sending our pilots there to fight uh, to fight against imperialism, et cetera, et cetera. So Khrushchev never quite understood some of those allegations. Um, and in a very telling exchange in uh, the spring, actually it was already in the summer, I think it was June, I believe 1963 at the Politburo in the, in the Soviet Union. Um, he, uh, he was recounting his conversation with Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro had always asked, you know, had also asked him, you know, what is the problem between you and China? And Rishov said, you know, I don't know. That's what I'm asking. What is the problem between us? We are for, we, you know, we are for struggle against imperialism and they're also for struggle against imperialism, et cetera, et cetera. So he couldn't understand it. And then he said, I think the, the, the reason is that the Chinese want to be, want to play the first fiddle in the communist orchestra, so to speak. They want to be in the first place. They want to be in the first place. And uh, uh, we're not giving, well, it's not quite his words, but he basically, you know, we're not giving them this place because as Rousseau explained, we are more suited for the role of leadership in the communist movement. We, um, we are, you know, greater, we're more experienced and so on and so forth. So how can the Chinese take this role? How can they try to claim leadership from our hands? This is completely unacceptable. Actually, Khrushchev phrased it in, or framed it in quite, uh, I would say, racist, slightly racist terms that, you know, how can the Chinese even pretend uh, to do that? Uh, so, so that I think was the Soviet explanation. Khrushchev thought that the Chinese were trying to take the mantle of leadership from his hands. They did not deserve this. They did not deserve this. Um, uh, so therefore, there was the split, right? That's one possible answer, certainly from the, from the Soviet side. And here's an interesting piece of evidence from the Chinese side. You know, in 1989, and we may want to talk a little bit about, about this later. In 1989, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev uh, came to Beijing to normalize the relationship after years and years of, of, of very uh, bad relations of years of, of confrontation. And Deng Xiaoping revisited the history of the Sino-Soviet split. And he, he told Gorbachev something very interesting. He said, you know, um, we criticize you for being dogmatism and we were all dogmatist and rather we criticize for being revisionist. You criticize for being dogmatist. And there was this ideological struggle between us. We don't think that this was the problem. He says, actually, the real problem, Deng Xiaoping said, was that you looked down on us and we did not feel equal. So that's Deng Xiaoping's assessment of the reason for the Sino-Soviet split. 
And interestingly, Deng Xiaoping was, of course, at the forefront of fighting the ideological struggle with the Soviet Union. Mao would send him to Moscow to quarrel with the Soviets, and you know he defended Mao's line, etc. And uh, and it's interesting to think that later Deng Xiaoping said, you know, all of that was just us firing empty cannons, so to speak. This was not the problem. The problem was you didn't you looked down on us. We did not feel that this was a relationship of equals. So that would be my uh, part, certainly part of my explanation for the Sino-Soviet split. Let's now look at the geopolitical situation that both the USSR and the People's Republic of China were involved in. During the period before and after the Sino-Soviet split, you have two big wars in East Asia. You have the Korean War and the Vietnam War. And how did they interact with each other during both of those conflicts and did they change between their interactions in Vietnam and in Korea? So yeah, those uh, the, the Korean War uh, overlapped with the years of the closest uh, uh, friendship of between China and the Soviet Union when the alliance was just really coming together. And uh, in fact, I would argue that the establishment of the alliance and the outbreak of the Korean War were probably somehow connected with one another. Why do I say that? That is because, of course, we know that Kim Il-sung, General Kim Il-sung, the leader of North Korea, wanted to, um, quote unquote, unite with South Korea, which means to basically attack South Korea. And he proposed that to Stalin. He knew that he couldn't do it on his own. He raised this issue with Stalin time and again and again and again, saying, Comrade Stalin, uh, if we just cross the border, this regime will fall. Uh, they have a revolutionary situation there. They're just waiting for our help. Uh, we will, uh, we will uh, be very successful with this. Stalin put him down every time, saying, no, we cannot do this. No, we cannot do. As late as October 1949, he did that, which is interesting, by the way, because some historians claim that it was the fact that the Soviet Union now had the atomic bomb that that, that allowed Stalin to finally give Kim Il-sung green light. Well, the Soviet Union got its atomic bomb in August 1949, and in October, Stalin still denied the request uh, from Kim Il-sung to reunify with or to <laughs> invade South Korea, to be more precise. So Kim kept pressing him, and finally, in January, at the end of January 1950, when um, there was the there was a basically drunken reception in Pyongyang, and uh, 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 Kim Il Sung came up to Shtikov, who was the Soviet representative, and said, "You know, we want to um, effectively invade South Korea." And Shtikov then responded to Stalin. Stalin responded back to Shtikov, saying, "You know what? We can consider this." So something changed in late January 1950. What Stalin actually started, instead of having given him a red line, it was now an amber light. It wasn't, you know, we can consider this, we can look into this. And of course, later in a few months, Kim Il-sung went to Moscow and Stalin finally gave him the green light to attack. The question is what happened? And the obvious answer is, well, this is exactly this, the time when Stalin has finally agreed to sign a new treaty of alliance with China. And in the beginning, I alluded to the fact that historians were not certain about why Stalin changed his mind on the question of the treaty. Uh, and, and at the same time, why he changed his mind on the question of the Korean War. Those things 
things seem to be connected somehow. One factor that could possibly uh, be part of the puzzle, maybe a big part of the puzzle, is that Stalin no longer was afraid that the, there would be American intervention in mainland Asia. And this is, of course, you know, the reason he was not a the he reason he was now convinced there would not be such an intervention was uh, Dean Acheson's famous uh, remarks at uh, uh, National Press Club where he said the American defensive perimeter in Asia did not include mainland Asia. So basically went, you know, in, described the American defensive perimeter, which did not include either Korea or China or mainland China. So this was, a, uh, this was something that would have encouraged Stalin to think that the Americans would not get involved. Stalin was really risk averse. He did not want to trigger a war with the United States. That's the last thing that he wanted to do. So therefore, he only gave green light to the Sino-Soviet alliance, which could have potentially triggered American intervention, and to the Korean War, which, is, which could have also triggered American, actually did trigger American intervention because Stalin miscalculated. But, uh, but anyway, so he only gave the green light because he thought the Americans would not intervene. In the case of Korea, it was a bad, bad miscalculation because, of course, the Americans did intervene. In any case, Stalin, even after the Americans intervened, and of course, after you had the Incheon landing and uh, the United Nations forces were able to roll back the North Korean offensive and were already pushing towards the Yellow River, Stalin was even willing to lose North Korea, but for the fact that the Chinese came to rescue it. And he actually asked the Chinese, said, you have to help the North Koreans. And the North Koreans, or rather the Chinese agreed to do that. In fact, uh, it seems that Mao was quite keen to do that as um, a prominent historian Chen Jian has written extensively about this. Mao was very keen to find the Korean War for his own reasons of domestic mobilization and various other concerns that he had. Uh, but in any case, from the Soviet perspective, this was a case of uh, getting the Chinese into this war, getting the Americans bogged down there, which from Stalin's perspective, um, avoided the outbreak of war in Europe where he feared it would come. Stalin believed that war would come one way or another, but it was better to get the Americans and the Chinese fight this war in Asia than fight it with the Soviet involvement in Europe. So this is how it worked out with the Korean War. And of course, the fact that the uh, Chinese relied on Soviet weapons uh, during the during the war, and there was such close coordination along military lines, actually helped solidify the Sino-Soviet alliance uh, made it look and work like a real alliance. So that is the Korean War. The Vietnam War came later when the Sino-Soviet relationship was already under great stress. In fact, by 1964, I don't know how you would date the outbreak of Vietnam War, but let's say let's say we can we can count from August 1964. Why not? So 1964, you have um, uh, you know the Sino-Soviet relationship is already uh, shambles, and 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 they from the Soviet perspective. Um, they were really annoyed in 63 approximately. The Vietnamese actually were siding with the Chinese in the Sino-Soviet split. They were really annoyed about this. Now there were different reasons why the, why the Vietnamese actually decided to side with the Chinese uh, for a time being. But later the Vietnamese became more more neutral. And then eventually, of course, as we know, towards the late 1960s, you see a perceptible shift in the Soviet direction, so much so that after the Vietnam War, the Vietnamese actually shifted to the Soviet camp. Now. The Soviet game in 1964-65 was the following. 
And, and we're talking here after Khrushchev's ouster already. When uh, Khrushchev was ousted in, in October 1964, he was replaced by a so-called triumvirate, or the triumvirate, tri, tri, I cannot pronounce this English word, uh, of Brezhnev, Kasigin, and Podgorny. But basically, Brezhnev and Kasigin were leading the, uh, leading the charge there on the Soviet side. So their game in relation to Vietnam was to help Vietnam fight off this war with the United States or to, you know, to repel American imperialism. And the obstacle that they saw to this was the rivalry with China and the fact that China seemed to be in the way of this and the Chinese did not want to cooperate with the Soviets. In 1965, February 1965, Alexei Kasigin, Soviet Prime Minister, turned up in Beijing and had a meeting with Mao Zedong, in the course of which he told Mao, you know what, we are communists and we are, you know, you're communists, we're communists, why can we not cooperate in Vietnam and repelling American aggression? It doesn't make any sense. Why are we quarreling? And Mao Zedong told him, our struggle will last for 10,000 years. And Kasigin said, 10,000 years? It seems like a very long time. To which Mao Zedong said, okay, let's take 1,000 years off. Our struggle will take, will last for 9,000 years, but um, I'm not willing to go down uh, anymore on that. So for the rest of the Vietnam War, basically it was a very interesting dynamic where Vietnam was uh, actually relied on both the Chinese support uh, and Soviet support, increasingly on the Soviet support because it was the Soviets who were supplying sophisticated weapons, including to shoot down American aircraft, etc. Uh, uh, but China and the Soviet Union, of course, remained at each other's throats. So that this is how this particular uh, relationship unfolded. And then, as I mentioned, eventually, uh, with the Vietnam War winding down in the early 1970s, well, really after 1973, to be precise, uh, you have Vietnamese shift away from China and more towards very, uh, you know, an alliance with the Soviet Union. Uh, effectively formal alliance by 1978 uh, because for a variety of reasons, but I guess because the Vietnamese were afraid of China, more or less. The final geopolitical issue in Asia that I want to take a look at is the other major player in Asia, which is the USSR cultivating a relationship with India throughout the 50s and early 60s. And then, of course, you have the Sino-Indian War of 1962, where India and China are in direct competition with each other, whereas the USSR and India are trying to create a friendly working relationship with one another. So how does the USSR's relationship with India influence its relationship with China? Right. So that's a, that's an excellent question. Um, in the 1950s... Um, the Sino-Indian relation was actually developing quite in a positive direction. Uh, we have visit of uh, Jawaharlal Nehru to Beijing in, uh, in 1954, for example, and even before that, you already have you know, John Lai's visit to India and the development of principles of uh, five principles of peaceful coexistence, which were supposed to guide uh, this relationship between China and India. Um, uh, despite the fact that they had different social systems, so to speak, India actually helped socialist, socialist China into the um, into what was then called the third world, right? Uh, so, so the fact that China uh, made its 
famous entry at the Bandung conference in 1955 actually had a lot to do with India being in favor of that, in fact, supporting China throughout this process. Um, but then this relationship started to experience problems and there are different reasons, different ways of, of explaining why this relationship experienced problems, just like in the Sino-Soviet case, there are different ways. You can approach it from the national interest perspective, from ideological perspective and, and so on and so forth. You can also, you can talk about China and India. You could say, well, actually the problem was that there was insecurity in China, fear of insecurity. Uh, or a feeling of insecurity in relation to uh, the frontier and especially given the question of Tibet where you had a rebellion and uh, Dalai Lama of course fled to India and uh, the Chinese were concerned about this so you could argue that there the sore the core problem the the source of the problem between China and India was this issue of insecurity and uh, their their contested frontier but I think that would not cover the whole story it's just very you know maybe an even small part of the story I don't know how small but fairly you know fairly small part of the story I think a bigger part of the story once was once again the question of leadership and competition uh, between China and India as great powers in their own right and certainly great powers in the context of the third world uh, where China was was um, presenting itself as a potential leader, as a real leader, and also where India had its own agenda. Of course, Nehru had his own ideas with an online movement and how India was leading that. Uh, so there was this clash of personalities and clash of bits to global leadership in the context of the non-aligned movement in the third world uh, that I think helped also uh, derail this relationship. Uh, so those two factors, I think, combine by 1959, you have a fairly tense relationship and in fact clash uh, at the border area in the Himalayas. You already have the China and India uh, you know, coming to blows there on a limited scale. What really annoyed Mao Zedong at this point was that the Soviets tried to be neutral in this conflict. Now, Khrushchev's position was, why can, you know, why do you core, why are you fighting in the Himalayas? Who cares to who, you know, Aksai Chin belongs or something? It's nobody lives there anyway, in the middle of nowhere. Who cares about it? But why, by fighting with India, you will only force Nehru to rely more on the imperialists, on America, uh, and we will lose India, so to speak, because India, now, although it was not aligned, but Nehru was claiming to be some kind of socialist, whatever you can say of him about his socialism. But in any case, he was a potential recruit to the East in broad uh, in broad terms. And Khrushchev thought that by uh, by fighting with India, Mao would actually force India away. Uh, from the world of socialism and to rely on more on imperialists and, and, and also undermine the Communist Party in India uh, because, you know, the Communist Party would be seen as a kind of a fifth column in the context of Indian politics. So Khrushchev was very much against this antagonism and wanted to solve the problem between China and India and try to talk to both, etc. And Mao Zedong saw that as a fundamental betrayal of China, because if you're military allies and you have a problem, you know, you have a problem with a third country, aren't you supposed to help your ally? in this kind of situation. So he saw that as a fundamental betrayal and that helped derail the Sino-Soviet relationship. In fact, uh, if you, if I were to, you know, to find a particular moment where it became very clear that the relationship was going to hell, this was uh, October, 1959, when Khrushchev came, turned up in Beijing and had conversations with Mao Zedong and various other leaders. 
where they talked about India, and this was one of the big issues they discussed. Uh, uh, India and they approached India, how to deal with India, and uh, and and Mao was really disappointed with Khrushchev, and uh, you know Khrushchev was in, in his turn disappointed with Mao. Uh, so from from there, they, you know, after Khrushchev left Beijing, the last time, or oh, this was the uh, the last time the Soviet leader visited Beijing for uh, for thirty years. The next one was. Uh, uh, was uh, Mikhail Gorbachev in May 1989. So this was really the turning point. Uh, then, of course, you had the 1962 conflict. And here the situation is very interesting because what happened in 1962 was that Khrushchev kind of actually sided with China for a time at least. Uh, when the border war, the conflict started, he sided with China and the Indians were quite disappointed, obviously, with his position and historians have been trying to figure out why he sided with China. And if you look at the context, it becomes clear that something else was, was happening in October 1962 that made Khrushchev a little bit concerned about his position in the global, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, in global affairs. And this is, of course, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. So he was uh, uh, he was worried, perhaps, that if there's a confrontation with the United States, you know, he really wanted to have China on his side. Therefore, India uh, was relegated to secondary status. So while there was this conflict, those you know famous 13 days um, uh, when when the Americans and the Soviets were seen to be on the brink of a nuclear war. Uh, the Soviets actually supported China in the Sino-Indian conflict, but then they changed their position once it seems the thing would settle down a little bit in the relationship with the United States, and they returned to their preferred neutrality. What we've hinted at throughout this discussion is the necessity of picking sides between this split. So how did this split influence communist parties in minor nations, in third powers, whether we're talking about Albania's decision to side with China, whether we're talking about the Vietnamese Communist Party and their decisions about which side they're going to take in this, and also the general Eastern Bloc that was tightly tied into the USSR through things like the Warsaw Pact. How did the minor socialist nations deal with the Sino-Soviet split? Well, it was a devastating blow to the communist uh, movement uh, worldwide. Uh, I think it's spelled really the beginning of the end uh, actually, no, not the beginning of the end, you know, maybe the end of the end, because actually the beginning of the end was probably 1956 and the Soviet invasion of um, Hungary that also, that just really destroyed Western communist parties in many ways. People were quitting uh, communist parties. People were just, uh, you know, people felt betrayed. Uh, well, there were actually it was a double blow. First, it was, of course, the... Um, the de-Stalinization speech, which was leaked to the West, and that showed Stalin for the vile criminal that he was, and uh, the communal, various Western communists were asking them the following question, not just Western, but also in the Eastern Bloc, you know, if Stalin was such a vile criminal, then how did we follow him so blindly? There must be a problem there. So because of that, uh, in many ways, this was the trigger, the immediate trigger to unrest in Eastern Europe, which then led to Soviet uh, near invasion of Poland and uh, actual invasion of, um, of Hungary in 1956, uh, which then again were, had huge ripple effects for the communist world where you know, membership of communist parties uh, simply plummeted in many cases, like in, for example, in the, in the United States, also in many places in Western Europe. Then whatever survived of those communist parties again was 
had to deal with that question of the Sino-Soviet split. And let's say, you know, the British Communist Party was actually quite puzzled by this. And they sent delegations to uh, both Moscow and to Beijing to try to figure out who was right, what was the whole thing about, you know, how do you, what position do you take? Inside those communist parties, you had splits where with uh, small factions splitting themselves and proclaiming themselves to be Maoists and of course the Chinese offering support to this. So throughout the 1960s, when even China was quite isolated on the international stage, you would have delegations of some random people from like New Zealand or, um, uh, or, or uh, you know, Iran come to China to meet with Chairman Mao and be inspired by him. So those splittest Maoist factions actually emerged in many communist parties around the world. Fundamentally, the biggest problem for the Soviets was in the socialist camp itself, as ruling communist parties also had to pick pick and choose. And by no means did they all back the Soviet Union. In fact, it was very complicated. As I mentioned, Vietnamese backed, backed China first for probably for reasons of, you know, feeling that the Chinese more militant line uh, aligned better with Vietnamese sense of where they had to be going in their own conflict to liberate South Vietnam from, you know, American imperialism or whatnot. So that is probably the reason for their alignment. The same thing also works for North Korea. So the North Koreans align themselves with China more than with the Soviets. And then they really played one against the other. And again, the North Koreans really liked the more militant tones of Chinese propaganda more. But it has to be said that by the late 1960s, they also started to dislike the Chinese very much because of the Cultural Revolution. Kim Il-sung was deeply resentful about this. And there was actually a border clash between them, between the two countries in 1969. And so the North Koreans uh, walked away from the Sino-Soviet split, sort of playing two sides against one another. Uh, and uh, the, you know, Kim Il-sung managed to survive. He, he was the ultimate master of this, of this game. Uh, as you mentioned, Albania was an interesting case. It was an early case of uh, a country that was quarreling with the Soviet Union for probably for reasons of its own, really. But then the Chinese jumped on the opportunity and Albania became their only ally in Europe, uh, or only real ally in Europe for then much of the 1960s. Uh, and into the 1970s, it always has to be said that Albanian leadership then became really disappointed with China when it turned towards the United States. So that relationship also eventually crashed. Uh, there were other quasi-allies. I won't say they're quasi-allies, but sometimes they supported, they, they turned out to be more in support of China, like the Romanians. The Romanians used this opportunity afforded by the Sino-Soviet split to win a room for maneuver for themselves. So when people talk about Soviet satellites in Eastern Europe and say, oh, you know, the Soviet Union controlled Eastern Europe, this is certainly true to a large extent, but we also have to be mindful of cases like Romania, which were a huge pain in the neck for the Soviets for much of the Cold War. They never wanted to do what the Soviets wanted them to do. There was constant conflict over um, the role of the Warsaw Pact, of, over Comic-Con, over, you know, a Romanian non-invasion of Czechoslovakia. The Romanians did not want to do that. And also the Romanian special position in the Sino-Soviet split, where they not only refused to support the Soviet Union or indeed China, they tried to, mid, you know, try to take mid, middle position and actually uh, try to reconcile the two sides with their own interests in mind, of course. So Romania was an interesting case there. Um, and then uh, I think that's about it, really. Uh, other Eastern communist, Eastern bloc parties in Europe, generally speaking, supported the Soviet Union for their own reasons, for their own reasons. But uh, the ultimate effect of this split 
was that the communist movement by the late 1960s effectively ceased to exist. It did not really exist. There were, there were just various parties and they were quarreling among one another. The Soviets were trying to lead, but it was not clear who would follow them. Uh, so that, if you think about from, you know, from the perspective of the long-term fate of the communist world, this really was the thing that killed the communist world as we know it. Uh, the Sino-Soviet split undermined it fatally and it never, never recovered. This discussion about the grievances that China and the USSR had between each other and also the geostrategic concerns and breakages between their alliance explains reasons why there might be an ideological divergence between the two of them, but not necessarily why it would be so extreme a split that the People's Republic of China would begin to view the USSR as a greater threat to them than the capitalist Western powers, in particular the USA, that they had fought a war with only 25 years earlier. So why was there such a strength of feeling regarding the two countries, and in particular the threat that the USSR might play to China's future, that China decides to turn to the USA? It doesn't seem like they would be a natural ally of each other. Why is it such a great split that it leads to this complete realignment and this tripolar order that comes out of it? Well, that's a, you know, that's a million dollar question there. The, the interesting thing about China as well is that, and that's something I have not really spoken about so far, is how uh, the Sino-Soviet relationship was tied, tied into Chinese domestic politics and Mao's domestic uh, political struggles, in particular, of course, the Cultural Revolution. So in, when the Cultural Revolution begins in earnest in China in 1966, you have uh, an almost like a, a general climate of anti-Sovietism and Soviet bashing, uh, because effectively domestically, Mao Zedong was accusing his critics of, of trying to lead China towards capitalism, just as the Soviet Union was doing in their own country. Of course, we know that this was not the case and that there was uh, not really kind of some kind of movement towards capitalist restoration uh, in, in the Soviet Union in the 1960s, but it didn't matter. This is what Hao Mao presented it. And uh, he, um, he criticized his domestic opponents or would-be opponents for being effectively Chinese, as he called Liu Shaoqi. He was Chinese Khrushchev. Uh, Liu Shaoqi was second in command, somebody who was later purged and uh, died uh, from neglect and in prison. So the Soviet, while this cultural revolution was going on and the Soviet Union was effectively a factor in Chinese domestic politics, there was little scope for uh, a reasonable approach to this whole problem of the Sino-Soviet relationship. The Soviet Union was internalized as China's enemy. Now, uh, at the same time as this was, was happening, there was gradual militarization of the Sino-Soviet border. From the Soviet perspective, China presented a very clear um, uh, strategic threat. The Soviets felt very insecure, very vulnerable about Siberia and the Far East uh, in next to very populous China. So they built up their forces. Uh, they sent a military force to Mongolia. Uh, <clears throat> in order for from their perspective to protect themselves against this possible Chinese threat. And indeed, if you looked at Chinese politics in the late 1960s, it seemed like, you know, it was going completely all crazy, completely crazy. Uh, uh, the Soviet embassy came under attack I mean, British embassy was burned down. Uh, so it was uh, it, it was madness in China and the Soviets, you know, you cannot really blame the Soviets for thinking that if you, you could end up in a war with China, therefore you have to build up military forces. But the way that this was seen from the 
uh, Chinese perspective was this was really seen as a threat uh, by the Soviet Union and especially after 1968 because in 1968 the Soviet Union invaded Czechoslovakia in order to fix fix uh, or restore their version of socialism. They did not like what was happening in Czechoslovakia with Prague Spring and all of that. You know, that seemed like uh, uh, just something that uh, that the Soviets could not allow to go on. So they invaded Czechoslovakia uh, and uh, uh, effectively crushed uh, the Prague Spring. Now, from the Chinese perspective, this was a bad development. Not that they sympathized with with uh, with socialism with human face you know this was all uh, evil revisionism as far as they're concerned from ideological perspective but it seemed like a dangerous precedent for the soviets to invade the neighboring country to to establish their version of socialism so the chinese were concerned with the ongoing militarization of the border the buildup of soviet forces in mongolia and the fact that what happened in czechoslovakia you know was an interesting signal in this regard the chinese really were worried about the soviet threat so it was an interesting case of security dilemma which ir theorists like to talk about uh, the soviets built up their forces because they were threatened by the chinese the chinese in return saw that as threatening them and so there was a there was a competition sort of who would out outdo who and then of course that led in March 1969 to border clashes at the uh, uh, in a small island called Jinbaldao on the Usuru River in the Russian Far East now that actually the Chinese started although the Chinese historiography still tends not to acknowledge that well actually much of it actually now does uh, thanks to brave work by Chinese historians, but you know the official version is still that the Soviets actually started the shooting. But we know that the Chinese started the shooting, and uh, uh, and what they were trying to do there was uh, to to kind of uh, to force a showdown with the Soviets in a place where they had relative advantage in the hope of um, uh, in the hope of. Uh, uh, deterring the Soviets from the later invasion of China. This was the kind of proximate idea of, of in the in the minds of the Chinese military establishment at the time. Now, of course, um, the Soviets reacted to, to this with a show of force, and so there was some serious fighting in the border area, which then later extended also to the western section of the Sino-Soviet frontier, and there was a clash in Xinjiang, which the Soviets actually initiated this time. And then they also floated unclear hints about the potential preemptive nuclear strike against China which really worried the Chinese strategic community and uh, the military establishment, who then advised Mao uh, to uh, seek rapprochement with the United States. So this turn towards the United States clearly had uh, more or less a strategic rationale. And uh, it was underpinned by Chinese growing fear of the Soviet Union. But there is an interesting question in relation to all of this. And the question is, when historians talk about how Mao was driven by his ideological visions and how the Sino-Soviet split was all based on, you know, his interpretation, particular interpretation of Marxism-Leninism, my question to to this is: Okay, if Mao was really driven by his his revolutionary visions, then how come in 1969 he suddenly abandons those visions and then repairs relationship with the arch enemy U.S. imperialism? How do how do you square the circle? You know, how do you if you are such a believer in revolution, how is it that you turn towards America in, in no time? In fact, it's quite interesting 
um, before the Sino-American rapprochement, uh, Mao was trying to figure out how to reach out to the United States. And one, one way that he, wanted, he tried to do that was he met with um, uh, Edgar Snow, who was an American correspondent who had first interviewed Mao back in Yan'an uh, in the 1930s and, and published a very famous book about China called Red Star Over China. So Edgar Snow would uh, every so often would turn up in China and have those conversations with Mao. And Mao thought that he was a CIA agent. Uh, which of course was not true, uh, but uh, in fact, uh, you know, he was seen by the U.S. Uh, uh, policy community something of a lefty. Uh, so they did not even, you know, they were not even worried too much about him going to China. You know, uh, he he must be communist anyway, so who cares if communist goes and meet, meets with another communist? So they kind of ignored this whole aspect of this meeting between Mao and Snow. But there was an interesting moment in their conversation where where uh, where suddenly they start talking about Nixon, and uh, Mao says, you know what? If you go back to the United States, can you tell Nixon that if he wants to come to China, he would be welcome? And Edgar Snow was like, what? what? You know, he was, of course, slightly of, you know, he's very much of anti-Nixonian convictions, I suppose. So he, he said, you know, that's crazy. Why would you invite Nixon here? He's such a, uh, you know, he's such an anti-communist. And Malden said, you know, if you see Nixon, tell him that he's the number one best fellow in the world. And Edgar Snowden had to clarify this, really, is that what you want to say? So in the end, but what interesting thing about the story uh, was that after this conversation, this conversation was sent around the Chinese party, various party cells around the country, asking people to comment on it. And the, the, the feedback from this was, you know, people were asking at party meetings, so if we are if we think that Nixon is the number one best fellow in the world, why can't we repair our relationship with the Soviet Union? What's the problem here, you see? So uh, there was a lot of incomprehension and for obvious reason, because it seemed like an, a complete ideological turnaround, which is why as a historian, I'm slightly cynical about you know this, this ideological rationalization for anything that happened in the Sino-Soviet relationship. But let me be completely honest here and, 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 and explain why I'm so cynical. I'm Russian, I mean, not that Russians are necessarily cynical, but I am a Russian historian who became politically aware and politically matured in, the, in, in Russia in the 1990s when things were falling apart and when people who yesterday were great communist bosses or you know, marched uh, under banners towards glorious future under communism suddenly became communists and Democrats only to again change their colors when uh, it politically suited them so. So I think as historians, and that includes me, we bring our background and our biases and our un maybe unconscious biases into our work. And so when I approach Sino-Soviet relationship uh, and generally you know, Chinese foreign policy or Soviet foreign policy, I tend to look for power, struggle for power, struggle for leadership. And when I see ideology, I think, oh my God, these people are just, you know, they're just kidding themselves or they're just trying to rationalize what is actually uh, happening there for other reasons, as it were. But this is because this is my background and you would expect this from me. But at least I'm being, I'm being forthcoming here, you know, <laughs> maybe more than I should be. <laughs> I think it's a very important consideration to make because, as you say, the idea that a relationship can be only completely driven by ideology. You just can't square that circle with then 
China's turn towards an even more capitalist power, even if they thought the USSR was in some way revisionist or or, or improperly implementing socialism, then you would not turn to an, to a explicitly capitalist power. So just two more things before we get to your research and then we'll conclude. The first thing is what role did this competition and also specifically competition for leadership play out in the third world? Doing my research on things like the non-aligned movement, I see that there's a big contention around things like the Chinese nuclear program, whether they should support denuclearization or whether they should be in favor of what they call the Afro-Asian bomb and the idea that China can be a leader of, of a global South political community. So how did the USSR and China compete for leadership amongst what you might call the non-aligned, the third world, the global South? Well, they certainly try to compete for leadership. Um, Mao had this very vague idea about the world. I mean, his geography, his, even his geographic knowledge suffered sometimes. You know, he he had the one time there was this very funny conversation between Mao and somebody. I want to say somebody from Denmark, you know, so sort of Danish politician, and um, and and Mao said something like, you know, uh, uh, Denmark is a great power. And, uh, you know, this Danish politician is like, what? what are you talking about? Well, you know, you have Greenland. That's such a big territory. <laughs> so Mao had, you know, some interesting conceptions. And, and among his conceptions was this notion that there's this Afro-Asian world that is somehow in, uh, instinctively aligned with China because it is like China trying to overcome the legacy of imperialism. Therefore, they should work together. Uh, the, you know, billions of people come together and overthrow uh, overthrow this, you know, the first world, as it were. So, uh, uh, in reality, then, of course, when you see how that played out, you'll see that it didn't really work out. So, so China had very limited resources in terms of trying to get involved in in remote places like, you know, Africa, never mind Latin America. Um, when they did, they often came out on the losing side, uh, and uh, there was one moment already in the 1970s, after you know a long history of Chinese involvement with various revolutionary factions and in various African liberation struggles. At one point, Mao Zedong, I think, was speaking to Mobutu, and uh, he said. Um, uh, to Mobutu, you know, Mobutu, of course, was not exactly a uh, communist revolutionary. In fact, if anything, you know, exactly the opposite of that. Uh, he said, you know, we supported your opponents uh, all these years and they just cannot win. We don't understand what's going on. So now we're going to support you. So China became much more pragmatic. And uh, for example, after the coup in Chile, China ended up supporting uh, the you know Pinochet regime just because the Soviets seemed to be supporting uh, were were against this. So so China uh, China realized. I think Mao Zedong realized that there were limits to China to this whole revolutionary potential of the global South, so to speak. And for whereas in the 1960s they still tried to mobilize this potential. By the 1970s, I think they, they shifted more towards kind of strategic support of forces that were opposed to the Soviet Union because they saw the Soviet Union as their great rival. Therefore, they would sometimes support various reactionary regimes uh, and sometimes actually uh, together with the United States support a particular side in the conflict directed against the Soviet Union. A case in point was, of course, Angola in the 1970s um, where, where the Chinese uh, supported anti-Soviet forces and became involved in uh, what effectively was a three-side uh, three-side civil war. So that's that's as far as the Afro-Asian 
uh, movement is concerned. I think Mao, Mao Zedong overestimated the chances of global global South solidarity, and he was in, uh, increasingly disappointed by the 1970s. Although he continued to support that movement for. Uh, or rather not the movement, but various regimes of anti-Soviet orientation for some time longer until Deng Xiaoping finally came around and recognized that China simply had to curb its support for all these various uh, regimes and far-flung movements. And that is because it had to focus on its domestic uh, modernization. So in the 1980s, you see, with the ex ex exception of um, Afghanistan, you see basically curbing of Chinese support for, you know, or Chinese involvement in far-flung places. That leads on to the final question that I'm I'm fascinated about, which is what was the Soviet opinion of Deng Xiaoping? How did they see him? Because his star really rises and falls throughout the period of People's Republic. He's running the anti-rightist campaign in the 50s. He's then censured and turns. He overthrows the Gang of Four, led by Mao's wife after he dies. And then he takes over full control of the country and implements his reform measures. So how does the Soviet Union view Deng Xiaoping and also his reforms? And does that change when Gorbachev takes over, who is also obviously trying to liberalize and reform the USSR? So yeah, once, I mean, for, for the Soviets, Deng Xiaoping was a very familiar figure because of course, as I mentioned, Mao had sent him to quarrel with the Soviet Union on, in various ideological battles in the early 1960s. Um, when he came to power in, after Mao's death, um, the Soviets were not too keen on him. They, they, they thought that he would continue an anti-Soviet line. And indeed, he, it seemed like he would continue. He did continue this anti-Soviet line with his decision to normalize relationship with the United States or his real, real great push for normalization, uh, followed by his visit uh, to the United States in January 1979. Um, and, and then what for a time at least seemed like very, very close coordination in even intelligence and military uh, areas between the United States and China, People's Republic of China, under sort of the final years of the Carter administration, early Reagan administration. But then things started to change. And they changed both on the Soviet side and on the Chinese side. On the Soviet side, the Soviet Union was um, was in the, found itself in an increasingly isolated situation. So the Americans, I mean, first of all, the Soviets had invaded Afghanistan, obviously, in December 1979. There were sanctions that were imposed by the Carter administration. Then there was, of course, the boycott of Moscow Olympics. Uh, then the Soviets started having problem with Poland. Uh, there was the solidarity. Uh, you know, the series of strikes in Poland led by Solidarity and the Soviets wanted to crack down and the Polish would not crack down. So that just dragged on for several months and eventually the Soviets sort of forced, forced the, the Polish to crack down. Um, uh, Jaruzelski finally declared martial law in December 1981. And, uh, uh, and so what that led to was another round of sanctions against the Soviet Union uh, that was um, uh, announced by the Reagan administration. Of course, Reagan also made all kinds of unfavorable, unfavorable references to the Soviet Union, uh, promising to, to commit it to the ash heap of history and uh, calling it evil empire and whatnot. So, you know, the Soviets were quite concerned about what was going on. And of course, add to this the nuclear situation as well and the American decision uh, to deploy Pershing II and ground-based um, um, uh, cruise missiles in Western Europe that really worried 
the um, uh, the Soviets, uh, so they were quite paranoid actually about American intention in the early 1980s. Under those conditions, it seemed like the Chinese were not so bad after all. So they uh, started a process, gradual process, to be sure to try to rebuild relationship with Deng Xiaoping. Brezhnev, in one of the last one of his last acts of his career, he would die in November 1982. In March 1982, he made this famous speech in. Tashkent, where he announced readiness to basically improve relations with China. And the Chinese this time reciprocated, uh, not immediately, but in some ways they reciprocated. And the question is why? And I think that the, the answer is that Deng Xiaoping was gradually, was, 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 he thought that he was being sort of shortchanged in the relationship with the United States. He had bargained for a proper, almost a quasi-alliance really with the United States, and he hoped to get the Americans to help China modernize, provide technology, etc. And most of all, he had hoped that the United States would help him solve the problem of Taiwan. Uh, but instead, you have the American Congress pa pass the Taiwan Relations Act, um, in March 1979, and that essentially assured that Taiwan would be supported with American supplies of weapons uh, for the foreseeable future. And again, then Reagan administration tries to supply uh, an advanced uh, fighter to um, a fighter jet to Taiwan. And all of that really annoyed Deng Xiaoping. He hated to be played like a card against the Soviet Union. And he, uh, on that basis, he decided to de develop some room for maneuver. It does not mean that he wanted now to restore the Sino-Soviet alliance, but at least he engaged in some kind of a dialogue with the Soviet Union on the understanding that uh, that actually benefited China's strategic situation. Now, it has to be added to this that Deng Xiaoping started to change his mind about the Soviet strategic threat that it posed. In the late 1970s, it seemed like the Soviets were posing a huge threat. They were invading Afghanistan. Then there was, the, of course, the Vietnamese invasion of Cambodia, uh, where the Vietnamese ousted the Pol Pot regime. But from the Chinese perspective, they liked the Pol Pot regime, actually. Uh, uh, from the Chinese perspective, this was some kind of a Soviet-inspired operation that aimed at encircling China. So China found itself in kind of strategic encirclement, and Deng Xiaoping was really worried about it. But by the 1980s, the early 80s, the situation started to change, especially in Afghanistan. The Soviets were not pushing to get to the Indian Ocean as or rather, uh, you know, to the uh, to India uh, or to war ports, as as Big Brzezinski and the Chinese strategists predicted, nothing like that happened. So they were mired instead in this uh, protracted guerrilla war in Afghanistan, and uh, the threat that the Soviets posed seemed to vain uh, to 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 just de decrease uh, gradually. Uh, so for that reason, then Deng re-engaged with the Soviets, and then you come gradually to Gorbachev, and Gorbachev, when he came to power in March 1985, he also wanted to rebuild relationship with, uh, uh, with the Chinese, but crucially, crucially, he did not want to restore the Sino-Soviet alliance of old. In fact, there was a meeting between Li Peng, who was at that time, I guess it was deputy prime minister in China, he came to Moscow, he eventually became hardline prime minister, but he came to Moscow to meet with Gorbachev, and Lipong told Gorbachev, you know, we want to improve, improve relations, but we're not going to have that relationship we used to have. We're not ever going to be younger brother to the Soviet Union. And you know what Gorbachev said? He said, you know, we're happy with that. We don't need a younger brother. We have enough problems of our own, so we don't need a younger brother. So on that basis, then you have reconciliation between China and the Soviet Union. By the way, an unrecognized legacy of Gorbachev. Everybody in the West likes to talk about Gorbachev and what he did for the Berlin Wall and Eastern Europe. 
uh, a few people are willing actually to, to recognize that the normalization of relations with China was probably his most lasting legacy that is of huge strategic significance for today for where we are today. So Gorbachev played a, a, an important role there by coming to Beijing in 1989 at the time of Tiananmen Square protests. He refused to meet with the Tiananmen Square protesters. He did not really, it's not that he didn't care, but he re, he, he recognized that there were bigger uh, uh, fish to, to catch there. And you know he wanted to uh, improve relations with China and he did. And he did, and uh, and here we are today. Today, Russian-Chinese relations are certainly a far cry uh, from the confrontation that they have had. And both sides recognize that, and both sides understand that it's in their benefit, to their benefit, to maintain a good relationship without actually sliding towards some sort of a formal alliance, which both sides also understand actually did not uh, have uh, did not have such a positive uh, effect for either of them. The final question I want to ask you is: How do you go about your research? What are the archives that you tend to use? Obviously, you spoke earlier about having grown up in Russia, so do you predominantly rely on on the Russian archives? And what is the future for studying Sino-Russian relations? So that's a question I, I could talk about, you know, about this all day. <laughs> Things have changed uh, since I started studying Sino-Soviet relations back in the day when I did. Um, Soviet documents, Russian documents were not particularly accessible. So I had to go all around the world really chasing documents. I, uh, I looked in, you know, in places like Hungary and Mongolia, for example, for evidence on the Sino-Soviet relationship and actually found a lot of great stuff. Um, so, and then the Chinese also opened up their materials briefly. There was a period in China from uh, approximately 2006 and until uh, I guess about 2012 or so, where Chinese foreign ministry archives were quite open and you could go there and get a lot of interesting stuff, a lot of interesting perspectives on the Chinese view of this relationship. So, so I did, and that was very productive. Uh, but then the Chinese closed their archives. So they're basically closed now. Uh, so, so that there's you know, no immediate hope for things opening up there and now, uh, and which of course has been made even worse by, by COVID and the ongoing restrictions on, on traveling to China. So the situation is bleak as far as the Chinese uh, records go. Now, then something quite remarkable happened in Russia. Around 2013, 2014, suddenly the Russians started opening up their archives that had been closed for a very, very long time. Now, they, there was a brief moment of openness in the early 1990s, which uh, a certain generation of Cold War historians took advantage of. Uh, you know, people like uh, Orani Westad or Vlad Zubok, uh, Many great Cold War historians who we, uh, you know, who were known known to the to to our community, of course, uh, really got a lot of their research done in the early 1990s when the Russian archives were open. But then, things just really shut down for for a number of years, for really for a couple of decades, and and suddenly they've reopened. Uh, you know, we can speculate why they decided to do that, but now there's so much in Russia 
that I, as a, a, a as a historian, I mean, I don't even have time now to go to any other place except for Russia. Because if you go to Russia, you're just swamped by the amount of documents, you know, absolute deluge of of uh, of great materials that have never been used by historians and have not been part of our discussion of the Cold War. So the future is bright for Cold War research if you go to Moscow, because you know, if you know the language, uh, you can use make use of this material. You can rewrite many episodes of the Cold War with the help of new documents, uh, providing new evidence, new documentation. That's uh, that's really great to hear, and and shows you know a bright future for Cold War research uh, across the whole. So hopefully, as we go on, we're going to have 10, 20, 30, 40 more years of interesting you know work being done in the field of Cold War research, particularly as other countries start to open up so. their archives yeah so hope thank so. you so much yeah. for joining us again having such an interesting conversation it's been really great chatting with you thank you jack you've been listening to the lse cold war podcast with its host me jack Barsumelish. you can follow me on twitter at jrbm underscore ir theory be sure to follow the podcast we release new episodes every fortnight on soundcloud apple podcasts youtube and the lsei player make sure you are subscribed so you don't miss an episode like share the podcast and leave a comment or a review so we can hear your thoughts about the episode again i'm jack barsu mellish and this has been the lse cold war podcast